Welcome to Tales from the Dance Floor, a podcast exploring the lives and times of people from all walks of life who followed their passions and made careers out of DJing, producing, parties, dance culture, and the music industry. I'm Phil Morse from Digital DJ Tips. Let's get started. I'd like to welcome an old friend of mine, David Dunn, from Manchester, my, my home city. Hello, David. How are you doing, Phil? Very well, thank you. And how are you? I'm all right. I'm um, sat in a room in not-so-sunny Withenshaw right now, which is an area you will know well. I do know Withenshaw very well. Um, I've <laughs> very, very fond memories of my, my youth, 20s and 30s in that very city and all those suburbs. So, David, you and I first met when I was promoting a nightclub and you were the mid-morning DJ on, I think it was called Kiss at the time, Kiss FM, or it might have just turned into Galaxy anyway, the, the dance music station in Manchester. And you were kind enough to get me in several times to do uh, a live mix on the radio in daytime. And this was pretty unusual at the time, wasn't it? Dance music and the stuff we were playing in the clubs, getting an airing mid-morning on a mainstream radio station. They were special times, weren't they? Uh, well, I'm going to make you feel really old now, Phil. So in October, uh, we will celebrate 25 years of Kiss 102 going on air. Wow, that does that does make yeah. me feel pretty old, I have to say. 25 that's, that's years. That's when we died, yeah. Yeah, October uh, 1994 is when we went on air. And it, it was very unusual in that, um, first of all, it was the first sort of it, predominantly house music station outside of London on legal FM. Obviously, there were pirates here and there. In Manchester, as you might know, uh, most of the pirates weren't house music. They were mostly reggae and soul. Um, and we kind of took over the license from a previous race, radio station called Sunset, which had been the first specialist music FM station in Manchester. They were the opposite. They were predominantly soul, hip hop, reggae, with some house programs like 808 State and Sammy B's show. But they went bust after just under two years. There were quite a lot of financial problems, uh, and um, we picked up the license and licensed the Kiss name from Kiss in London. And as part of that deal, we used to take three of their shows, which were Graham Gold, Judge Jules, and Giles Peterson. Would you believe? Um, and then we went on air, and, and we were unusual because our view was we were going to be a station. Uh, for clubbers um, which at that point had never existed in Manchester even though by 94 you'd had house music going on for the best part of eight years really uh, and certainly at the heart of things for six years in the city and in 94 the club scene was very very healthy in Manchester Uh, but there'd never been a radio station that really reflected it the local FM had a dance music show on with a fantastic guy called Stu Allen Um, but other than that you had to listen to your cassettes if you wanted to hear house music during the day. So we led with that. And our policy was we would put local talent on because there was so much of it. People like yourself who were DJing and promoting nights. We would play club records as they came out rather than waiting for them to get licensed to a major and then become a radio edit four or five months down the line. So we would pick up on tunes as soon as we got hold of them via local record shops or via promotions companies producers themselves uh, and we had specialist music on every single night um and i was head of music at that station and it, it still remains the best job in radio i ever had in 30 years without a doubt it was a it was a very very special time and those who don't know 
how special Manchester was full stop at that time. It was a hotbed of youth culture and music and the bands were great and the DJs were great and the clubs were great. It had its problems, of course, but it was it was a very special place to be. It wasn't London and I think that was part of the, the charm, wasn't it? It wasn't London, but it was still important. It was better than London, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not going to argue with you on that one. The, the thing about the club scene and the dance music scene in Manchester by 1994, so house music had broken despite what certain DJs might say had broken in Manchester in 1988 so before those famous DJs went over to uh, Ibiza in September of 88 and supposedly brought Acid House back to the UK uh, Acid House had been filling venues in Manchester for a year by then um, and it really took off as you will remember really took off and then kind of around 92 it hit a bit of a doldrum um, uh, the initial acid house boom had waned house music had become mainstream pop so the likes of um, Stock Aitken and Waterman had shoplifted wholesale the production techniques and sounds and arrangements of house music so pop music sounded like house uh, and then progressive house had come in which um, was good in its own form but some of it was a little bit sort of ploddy for a lot of people who were used to the uplifting aspects of acid house but it, around 94 things started to change and the club started to um re get revitalized plus uh, the gay scene in manchester and a night called flesh in particular at the hacienda really kicked off and venues started to happen in the village like manta and then paradise factory which was the first purpose-built house music club um gay club in in manchester so we came in at a really perfect time when there was just about to lift and we became a focal point for that really because Manchester is a small city in comparison to some uh, and at that point in 1994 I would say the amount of people actively involved in promoting dance music, DJing, running record shops, labels was probably less, I would say well, easily less than 100 people. So it was a very small community doing a lot of stuff. So you all knew each other and you went to each other's nights. So it was easy to plug into that. And we put local people on and we showcased their club nights and we get put, gave them guest mixes, gave them radio shows. So the station itself became a bit of an open house for people who were involved. You People could come in and see us. They didn't have to sort of go through a secretary to get an appointment. They could just come to reception. Um so it was it was kind of it hit the sweet spot at the right time and over the next sort of three years it had another massive uplift i don't think the city has ever had as many club nights busy and running as it did between 94 and 97 uh, there were dozens and and you know we would kill to have that kind of scene now it was indeed an incredible time and that was exactly when when i was learning about promoting and djing and doing it by doing it and I remember, always remember, it was, it was fantastic that you could walk around the whole city with your flyers and posters, and you could get every, you could see everyone, and you could get every shop, and every every um, like hairdresser, and every clothes shop, and every record shop, and you could you could buy your music for the weekend, you could leave your flyers, you could put a poster up, you could meet everyone you wanted to see, and um, kind of get it all done on maybe two weekdays, and that was kind of that was it. That was the promoter's job. Uh, and as you say, small enough to to be like that, but big enough to count. Um, and I left there in 2006. Uh, you've been there kind of all your life. And 
to hear you say that was kind of the best time ever and it's never been bettered kind of fills me with a little bit of comfort because I, I, I miss it like crazy. Um, it was a very special time. Uh, it's, I mean, as a city, the city's in better shape probably than it has been for a long time, although we have our problems. There's, there's a, we have a, a real problem with street homeless in Manchester now because the housing situation here is terrible. Uh, and, and ironically, there is more building development than in any other point in Manchester's history since the Industrial Revolution. But in terms of vibrancy and stuff to do and places to go, it's never been busier Um but in terms of the club scene, it's smaller than at any time I can remember it pre-1992 because um, so many of the smaller clubs have gone. Um, so if you wanted to do a night, you're restricted to venues. Um, the warehouse project is a behemoth which runs from September to New Year's Day and brings some of the biggest underground names in the world to manchester on a weekly basis which is a, a it's an astonishing feat to have done that for over a decade well over a decade and it, you know every friday or saturday night is a, is a lineup any festival would be proud of the downside to that for manchester clubs is it's made it very difficult for small clubs to survive because um maybe this is speaking out of school but a lot of the contracts that the warehouse project draft with those djs make them exclusive to manchester mm. for the entire year so they there's a few who have the clout to be able to say i can do some other gigs um but most people who get a warehouse pro certainly more than one warehouse project gig will be exclusive to them and them only for the entire year which means the other nine months of the year they can't play at an event that isn't linked to the warehouse project so that meant that some of the what i would call the medium-sized clubs are about a thousand uh, so ones that you will remember like sankey's for instance um that needed good underground names to survive and, and fill a venue every week have gone to the wall mm. because they can't get that they can't get the, the djs to play at them well it's interesting that you talk about the kind of commercialization or at least the the business side of clubbing uh coming to the fore more and more because of course you started way before kiss kiss 102 was doing some pretty amazing stuff uh, which couldn't last. Good things never last, right? It didn't. It didn't last. No, they, they, they always get bored. In the end, <laughs> I think it's cap. Is it capital now? It's just a, that, that that frequency it, is now a, is now a, it, a national. It's, yeah, it's capital now. We were bought by Chrysalis Radio, who operated Galaxy. And um, the interesting thing, another interesting thing about Kiss is it was not owned by a group. It was a bunch of people who put together uh, a, a, um, a whole bunch of shareholders who were all independent. There was one small radio investment group had an investment in it, but nearly everybody on the board was somebody who put their savings or their money or their investment on the line. Mm. And that included the uh, MD Guy Hornsby and the programme director, uh, Mike Gray, who'd come from London. They mortgaged their house to put their money into it. So what that meant is everybody had put their 50, 60, 100 grand nest egg into it. And after about six months, the offers started coming in to buy it. Uh, and they held out and held out until eventually, it, October, I want to say October 97, they sold for eight times its value. So if you had a hundred grand in there, you were walking away with about about eight, about eight to nine hundred. Yeah, grand. yeah. I mean, you can understand. You can understand. Uh, it. If it, yeah, exactly. So, you know, it kind of got bought by Chrysalis, who then further down the line then got bought by Capital. And um, there you go. Yeah. So the same thing happened in, in in a way in clubbing. You know, someone big gets a stranglehold on it. It's happening radio. But before then, 
you were on Piccadilly. You were one of the very first people, and for those, again, who aren't from Manchester, which is going to be 99% of our listeners, Piccadilly was the big commercial station in Manchester, the only commercial station for a while in Manchester, and you were one of the people who was spearheading not only the house, as it happened, but all underground, local Manchester music, even five years before, before Kiss. And back then... It was different again, right? A totally different scene, even to even to '94. Yeah, I, and I joined. I, I joined there in '87, um, and I'd lived in Liverpool for five years, and I'd come home in 1986. Um, and, and prior to '86, was that you know was the cool city in Manchester. Manchester had the Smiths and New Order, and it had the Hacienda, which at that point was mostly empty. But Liverpool, certainly to '85, was the coolest. And I came home just as manchester started to lift and the manchester thing happened and i i got into piccadilly in 87 uh and and um became a producer there and and even commercial radio which we you know we now see is you know uh, the same songs on every station all day all night it's the same 25 30 songs um they had to have specialist music shows they had it was part of their license that's how they got to operate and because that's how local commercial radio was set up that you had to do these things you had to have social action programming links to the community and specialist music so there was specialist music on three or four nights a week and i started producing those shows and it was in the days when in those days you could go to the program actor and say i really like this music i think there's a lot of people like it and if you and if you made a case for it they would give you a show it was that simple um I was very lucky when I was there because that it's sort of an 88 period house music was coming through. Stu Allen, who I mentioned before, had been playing house music since 1986, but also played soul and hip hop and didn't want to just do a house show. Uh, and I was working with Stu, and he knew by that point I was at the Hacienda two to three nights a week, Thursday to Saturday, uh, as a punter. Um, and he said, well, you know, why don't you give David a go? Why don't you let him do the show? So we we started. It was called the Isometric Dance Class, not my title, and that started in eight, late '88. I did that for nearly two years, and I was literally playing the music that was coming out of the record shops, going to the DJs. Um, so you know, I'm, I went up to Eastern Block Records, which was at that point there was Eastern Block Records was really the main place for house music in certainly '87, '88. Um, and I just sort of said to him, I, I want to play the stuff you're selling to the DJs. So very often what they would do, because they're canny operators, you know, they knew if we played something on the radio, they might sell a few extra. Mm. Um, I would very often get the records that were going to be played on Friday and Saturday because the show was a Wednesday night. So I'd get the Wednesday delivery. Now, those other DJs like Mike Pickering, Graham Park, John DeSilva, wouldn't be playing those records till Friday or Saturday because there, there wasn't a club night on. So I was able to get this stuff sometimes ahead of them and get it on the radio, um, which was, um, for me, it was, a just, it was a huge thrill just to be able to do it for two hours on a Wednesday night to play this music that I was so passionate about. Um, and, it, you know, that was, it was madness, you know, 70,000 people listening to house music on, on, on you know, eight o'clock on a Wednesday night. Madness. Just in- incredible times. And it's a good a good way to segue into kind of your life and what you've what you've done because you've always been a radio a radio person but you've your your passion is is the music it's not the business um it's the music and you've always hand in hand dj'd and played in clubs well i say always you can fill me in if i'm slightly off, <laughs> off the mark on that but um 
and you're into production as well you're into making music so it's kind of did do you find that through your life these things have all fed into each other all kind of enriched each other and maybe even help you along the fact that you you, you do all of them I, I think i've been i do think i've been incredibly lucky um to make you know you know at times it was all my living uh all the times it was part of my living but I, to, to actually be part of music itself in any form um I've, I've just been incredibly lucky to be able to do that because I, I was brought up in a household where after we had dinner at night the tv went off and we put music on for a couple of hours every night since i was a kid my dad would put records on and then when i was old enough to start buying records i think at the age of eight i bought my first single from woolworths you know we'd, we'd just play music for two hours so th this was it was always in my life and i never thought when i was a kid that I would ever be able to you know be part of it and it started really when, when I was sort of 13 and I bought a drum kit. I went to a friend's house and he had some drums and was playing them. I thought, they look great. That looks like a that was like massive fun. And I'd seen the drummers on Top of the Pops and the bands on the telly. So I got a drum kit and started playing in bands. And, and that was what I thought, maybe, you know, maybe I'll do that. That that might be lucky, might be in a band that does it. But never thought there would be a living out of it. And then got into sixth form and um, there were discos going on. But there was nobody who knew how to DJ. Um, and that included me. But I had a massive collection of singles and albums because I'd been buying records by that point for 11 years. And I bought a lot of singles. Um, so they sort of said, do you want to do it? I'm going, yeah, all right, we'll do that. Um, you got paid a pound, which was fantastic, uh, and free soft drinks. So that I, I did that. And... I quite enjoyed doing that as well. So it, it, that's kind of where that bit started. I went to uni, then found out you could get paid to DJ in the social club at uni. Uh, and I didn't have a lot of money. I was on a basic grant. So I did that three nights a week, got involved in the entertainment side, did that, and then came home to Manchester in 86 after uni, not really thinking I would ever be involved in the music side, really. So the radio was then my way into into what I would call the professional side of it. Um, and I, my thing was always I wanted to be a programme director of a station um, uh, until uh, so, and I, hadn't, I wasn't DJing then apart from sort of doing some shows here and there on the radio and this was before the house music show and I remember going to the Hacienda one night on the dance floor probably about, about late 87 um, and just thinking I, I just want to do this I just want to be involved in this thing uh, and that's when my, that's really when my life took the turn because I, I figured there's got to be a way to join these two up um, as some other people were doing. And that's really when the two of them came together. That's when I, I kind of thought, oh, yeah, actually, I can do radio and I can do this at the same time. Um, but at that point, I still wasn't DJ, I wasn't DJing out in clubs at all because um, I'd never learned to beat mix. When I was DJing at uni they didn't have pitch control decks. So, you know, it was kind of cut in, fade in, fade out. So, it, you know, I then spent the next sort of three years learning, teaching myself to sort of actually beat mix. Um, and that's when I started playing out in 90, about 1993. And the first place I played was Dry Bar, which was Hacienda's sister bar. And that's when I actually started playing out in any form, really house music and that kind of thing. It's... Uh 
it's highly nostalgic listening to all this. I used, I'm sorry, yeah, no, I used to DJ in, proper old. Fun. Yeah, well, I used to DJ in Dry Bar as well, and um, you'll remember our mutual friend Herbie Sakana used to DJ there as well. There's all these names. You, two weeks ago. Oh, there you go. I, I hope he's doing well. Um, so, so, I mean, these were these days seem like a long, long time ago. There were no mobile phones. You could smoke on dance floors and. It was kind of like even just saying those words, it makes you realize how like literally how long ago it was. But you've managed to maintain a career all the way through everything that's happened since the commercialization of the whole thing. I mean, when you said back then pop music was starting to sound like house music, you know, we're talking about today. We could be talking about today after the EDM boom. Um, Things have kind of everything's changed. Everything's changed, but everything's kind of stayed the same. And you've been there ever since. You're still producing a radio show you make music you still dj i mean we're going to talk about what's happened what happened in the meantime but i I want to just ask you about longevity have you ever thought i've had enough of this now i want to do something else yeah there's been a couple of times um there's been a couple of times and i've thought um i've actually thought about stopping djing but i've still thought well you know what i'll still do the radio show because that part Mm. is still there after 30 years i still like doing radio shows um and there's been, you know, it's not been a, it hasn't, certainly hasn't been a continual upwards curve. And there's been quite a few ups and downs along the way. Um, you know, there have been times when um, I've sort of, particularly after Kiss, for instance, when, you know, I was working a lot when I was at Kiss um, because I was on the radio every day as well. And then I left Kiss and a lot of the DJ, and I actually moved to London for a few years then. And it was about a year before I could get a DJ gig down there because I'm this guy from Manchester. Who, who's he? You know. Um, mm. And I did Head Candy in sort of like the 2003 to 2010. You know, played at some of the biggest clubs in the world. Did well over 250 gigs. I would say I think it's close to 300 if I did it properly. Um, and after I, I left there, I could not get arrested for a gig in Manchester. It took four months to get a booking. So I know I've always been aware that um, when you're in, you're in, but it can go really suddenly and really quickly. Um, so I've never really had an illusion that, and, or, or even, you know, that, that I've never felt it was my divine right to have a career and continue doing it it's always just kind of been i'll do what i do and we'll see what happens and you know maybe maybe i'll still get some bookings this year maybe i won't next year who knows um sir michael kane always said a really it's one of my favorite quotes of which he had many but he used to say that about show business that you don't retire the business retires you because one Mm -hmm. day people won't phone you anymore uh, and I think that's kind of true, really, in anything, anything, any of the creative mediums. But does that mean you're going to stop being creative? You know, if, if nobody's buying an artist's painting, do they stop painting? Or is that, you know, that part's always, always there. Um, but the late nights, at my age, the late nights are getting very, very difficult, um, especially having a full-time job during the week. And that's the other difference. I've never not had a day job to go to while i've been djing i've always had to be somewhere on monday morning Mm. um and i never got to the point where i thought i'm going to stop everything else and just concentrate on the dj side of it and push that as hard as i can maybe if i had done that things might have been a bit different who knows 
Um, but I always, I think part of me always liked the security of a day job. And I, I always wanted to be involved in radio. I just could never let go of that, that little bit. So I think that's another reason why, why I've sort of I've carried on. You know, I've always had an outlet somewhere. So what's your, what's your day job now? You are a programme director, right? A music director. You're doing... No, no, oh, no, 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 no. no. I've, I've, no I've, I've changed tack completely. Oh, well, tell me. Catch, catch um, me up. So a year ago, I was working at a big sort of radio network in Manchester, and I'd, I'd been there about 11 months, and they decided to make a, a whole bunch of radical changes to, to the station and network aspects of it across the UK and cut down on staff, and I was made redundant um, because they didn't need another music programmer. They had, they had three, and they didn't need four. So um, at that point, having seen what had been happening to commercial radio over the last 10 years whereby it was the, the amount of people owning stations was getting fewer most of it was moving to london i, I decided that i would do something completely different because i figured i'm 56 now um this will be my last chance for a reset mm-hmm. um and if i don't do something different I'm, i may never work in radio again i don't want to move to london there are few, almost no paid opportunities in manchester so um i went away and volunteered um for a drug and alcohol service and treating people in addiction from uh, to drugs or alcohol uh, and i now work full-time as a recovery worker uh, so that's my day job now which is very different <laughs> to anything i've done before it is it is and it's it's a real about turn at, at uh the yeah. end well not the end but towards the end of a, a working life and i'm yeah i think that's incredible is it have you always wanted to volunteer has it always been something that yeah 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 and is this is this yeah. especially now is field. this through seeing the kind of downside of what goes on at night and some of the people who kind of don't outgrow you know their youthful extremes um has there always been an element of, of of that or has it just been because you 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 see it being in manchester all all the time and seeing the underbelly of the city anyway what where did the the desire to help specifically in drugs and alcohol come from i'd i'd kind of seen firsthand really um some of the damage that that it did to some people it, it's weird because some people can drink or take drugs and and not be addicted you mm. know that's the that's the nature of the beast they can take it or leave it it never gets harmful um but i'd seen a lot of people lose everything because of it you know and and, and it's kind of like in the in the music business and specifically in dance music yeah it's kind of like it's like alice through the looking glass everything's the wrong way around it, if you didn't do drugs you were weird it, in in the real world most people actually don't do drugs uh in dance music i would actually describe it as endemic um and i'm with drug and alcohol use particularly if you get addicted or you, it's, it's dependent usually mental health suffers as well mm. uh and you know there's been a lot of focus over the last few years about you know the mental health of people working in the nighttime industries as they're called here um but you know i am convinced that a, a whole chunk of that and it's something people don't want to say is caused by drug and alcohol abuse um uh, no, I would say 90% of the people that I work with on a daily basis have got some mental health issues going on. Were they there before they started using drugs and alcohol? In some cases, yeah, and it's made them worse. But then in other cases, long-term usage of those substances has caused mental health. 
so I'd seen so much of it really and I'd, I'd always wanted to volunteer but because of doing two jobs could never commit to somewhere to say I'm going to come in here this day or this night every week mm. um, and so then when when I wasn't working last year and I was trying to figure out what to do I thought this might be a good time to do it um, I, I found out really quickly that I, I absolutely loved working with those people um and so i've I've volunteered full-time to get the necessary experience i've got no social health or social care qualifications got a degree in english and drama not much use so (laughs) i did it five days i treated it like a job and did a load of training courses while i was on it um asked as many questions as i could sat in with as many people as i could went in five days a week nine till five uh and then got offered a job in may of this year which i took up so uh, and it's the best thing i've ever done um, it's really inspiring to hear it just to hear the enthusiasm for it from you i, I think the thing is uh, and um, what i would say to anybody about, uh, about a change in your situation and I, I, you know this is not me coming over all sort of um super american uh, and evangelical is that um change is inevitable and i would say this to anybody involved in the music business for instance things will change trends change music changes but throughout life we change all all the way through life otherwise we'd never move forward and sometimes you can look at change and and it's something that's not welcome and it's uh about whether or not you can find something positive to do something i would not probably have ever gone and done what i'm doing now and it just stayed in radio and do dance music Mm. but i was forced to make a change and and uh, you know at the age of 56 when you know a middle-aged bloke's not that attractive uh, job proposition for a lot of companies um and you know i've only ever worked in in sort of radio tv or or music what do you do well i i had to decide that i was going to do something else and my wife actually said to me if you're going to do this do something that you can get up in the morning and feel good about that you're passionate about that you and that you believe in because this is your kind of last reset chance to do it so you may as well go and do something um different um so i even work part-time when i was first volunteering i also worked part-time at the apple store in manchester because i'd got into a frame of mind where i just i decided i wanted to learn new things things i'd never done and um somebody sort of said after the recruiting you know you use max you love apple stuff why don't you do it it's a really fun place to work and i did that for three months and that was fantastic and i think i I just got got into a situation where i thought i'm going to do some stuff i've never done Mm. and push myself And, and it's the pushing part that's important that you know you've got to go you know what i'm gonna i'm gonna put myself out of my comfort zone and you know be scared and figure out a way to do it which is a pretty good philosophy for life to be honest if you can do that and not everybody's fortunate the changes that come to some people are not welcome are not great um and we all face those sort of challenges but sometimes if you're lucky enough or the time's right you might just get the opportunity to turn that change to your own advantage and i think you know i was lucky enough to have that that opportunity last year it's a it's a great story certainly not one i was expecting to talk about when yeah. we hit record uh, it's, <laughs> so, it's, that's really boring i know no it's far from it's, it's absolutely far from it i think it's fantastic to hear and i think a lot of people 
do that they get they they get too comfortable and get too stuck and even, and especially i guess in your case because it was something you'd always wanted to do it was something that you've loved since you were since you bought your first seven inch single to t- to kind of make the decision to turn your back at least for your days for your weekdays on a lifetime of that must have been literally like i don't know finishing school or or leaving home for the first time it must have felt as big as that it was i think there was the initial shock of being made redundant because it came from nowhere there was no warning and and i just had two rating sweeps on my stations and the ratings had gone up on both Mm. of mine so and i was thinking oh we're doing okay here um so there was the initial shock of that uh, but I think also it's always good, you know, they always sort of say, you know, leave the party before the end. Don't hang around. Uh, you know, I'm a big fan of leaving an hour early uh, rather mm. than sort of powering through to when these three of you left in the corner. Um, and I think it, I'd seen a change in radio. It wasn't. I, what I realised was that I was in love with something that didn't exist anymore. So the, the kind of radio I'd loved doing and had done... I'd been involved in from 1987, really, until even during the Head Candy days when we were doing our radio stuff there. In the last, certainly, eight or nine years, commercial radio has really, really changed in the UK. And I, I think I realised that the thing I wanted to do didn't exist anymore. Mm. So, you, you know, at that point, you have to kind of go, you know what? What are we going to do? We're going to have to do something different because the thing I do, it isn't there. It's a brave thing to it's a brave thing to say. Um, so, what killed it? Was it Spotify? Was it um, streaming? And uh, I think a combination of things. I think um, certainly streaming, Spotify, Apple Music to some degree, YouTube means that people can get the music they want exactly yeah, when yeah. they want it, um, as opposed to maybe having to listen for fifteen to twenty minutes to get a, a song that you like. And if that you know, if it's something that isn't going to be played on mainstream radio, you may never hear it. Well, you can just do your own playlist, you know, and and you don't need to be by a radio anymore. You've got your phone. You know, you, if you've got a car, you don't even need to put the radio on. You just hook mm. your phone up and Bluetooth it, and you can hear that. So it, it that's changed it. Um, I think the actual way that the industry itself runs in terms of the money-making side of it has changed because it's really about reach now it's about how many people are within your areas that you listen to because that's what you're going to sell your commercial sponsorships and deals on and therefore to get the biggest reach you have to do the most bog standard products and there's a generation really of, of, of young people who've grown up with pretty basic what i would say basic radio um and don't mm. know any different and they're also rejecting it. So I, I think radio, I think standard radio in this country faces a real, and around the world, faces a real challenge with the, the, the current teenagers that will grow up into adults because they really don't have much relationship with listening to the radio as we, as we, we wouldn't uh, know it ourselves at our age. It's not something that's a major part of their life anymore. And I think that's only going to decrease um, I think you you hit you know it's not only radio is it it's TV as well I mean to give you an example we yeah. our TV comes down a fiber and we've got the usual BBC you know the usual stuff um, but my kids don't, don't watch it they just don't watch it they watch YouTube or they throw YouTube onto the onto the big TV when they want to 
um, yeah. and we're, we're getting we're looking at a new provider now I had the conversation with my, my wife a couple of nights ago shall we just go for this provider that doesn't actually have any live TV on and we both said when did we last watch anything and it's like well anything worth watching is going to come on Netflix as a box set anyway at some point so um, and, and it's the same I guess it's the same in radio I guess it's uh, and I guess also I was in I was in the States recently and they have Sirius XM the, the satellite thing and it seemed to me, just being there for a week and, and driving around with the DJ in his car, they had all these stations on there with Diplo at a station and um, they were playing some pretty, you know, a bit like Kiss back in the day. And they've got loads of these stations beamed across the whole of the States. And it's almost as if because there's one big satellite up there making everyone, giving everyone the same stuff, they can be a bit more specialised and still find the reach to make it work. And I don't want to hear my voice saying this, but I think they've got it. They may be onto something there that, that's not happening in the UK. Yeah, I, I believe that the the way that radio works in the UK in the US has always been different to the UK model, anyway. And they were the kind of the first place. And Australia, ironically, strangely enough, was were the two places that did the networking thing before the UK. Because back in the old days. The commercial radio in the UK, every city had a station. They were all owned independently. Maybe a couple of them might be owned by the same people. Uh, and then networks formed as they bought up stations and created these networks. But um, America's always been way ahead of that. Um, I went to Clear Channel in Miami probably 15, 16 years ago, who were at that point, they don't exist anymore, the biggest radio operator in the US with hundreds of hundreds of stations. Um, and over there, you could be running an 80s station. And if you wanted to change it to be a country station on Sunday, you didn't have to ask for permission to anybody. You just did it. Uh, and I went around this huge building and there were loads of cubicles. And I was, what were in these cubicles? There's a guy size and said, oh, that's a radio station. Each one's a different station. So the, programmed by one wow. person <laughs> with automated links, um, all with a slightly different music uh, slant. So kind of serious is the, is the next level of that only with better technology because they have satellite radio, which you can now get in your car, which, you know, yep. it, it, we've, we're only just getting our head around DAB in our car and it still doesn't work, right? Yeah. Um, um, it, you're on local multiplexes, local networks. There's only one, two national ones with not much on it. But over there, they're way ahead. So for them to say to Diplo, look, do us a channel. We'll pay you a million a year to put your name on it um do some links here and there it's one guy running that station it's easy to do that's, inc um, that's incredible um if, yeah to hear to hear how it's going on behind the scenes i mean the guy i was with used to have a show on one of the serious xm channels and it's like they just asked him they just said hey hey dude you you, you, you filled in for someone yeah. once we quite liked it do you want to do it he did it for like three years or something um yeah and, and it's kind of you know it, it doesn't take many people to do that now so you you don't need to do that kind of service, which is very basic, because this generation isn't bothered about music features, isn't bothered about phone-ins, isn't bothered about, you know, that kind of stuff that we know as traditional radio. They yeah. just want the music with maybe somebody they've heard of, like Diplo, talking every so often. Mm. That's fine for them, because that's all they want, because they're, they're used to doing their own playlist where there's nobody speaking. <laughs> it's just the music. So, uh, you know, I think this, they're, they're way ahead of that there. Um, and that, but, you know, financially, they're still not in profit. No. So, you know, because they spend huge amounts of money on talent. Um, so it, the whole 
the whole model of radio and media has changed radically. Um, and, and particularly, I think, in the last decade, it's really, really changed. Um, so I think you can do niche. If you can afford to do it, you can do niche. Um, because it doesn't have to take a whole load of kit and people to do it anymore. Um, and if you can make it pay, then, then it's going to work. The nearest we've got to that over here is is we have community stations. So, my, for instance, in Manchester, my show's on a station called Gadio. And Gadio, I don't know if you've ever heard it, it's, it's, it's aimed at the gay community in Manchester. It's got quite a small broadcast area. So, for instance, here in Withenshaw, I can't get it. I have to be a couple of miles nearer to Manchester to get hold of it. Um, and that's a community station. It's mostly run by volunteers. There are some paid people. It's the biggest gay radio station in the world because it's got mm. an app. And a, a huge percentage of their listening comes through the app from mm. all over the world because it, it's a very clear niche that it's doing. Musically, it's doing exactly what Kiss would be doing now if we were still on air. It, it's the same idea. We're playing stuff up front, really targeted at the audience, proper dance music alongside pop and classic pop dance music and classics with a gay slant to it um and you know they, they they're managing to make that work it's their 10th birthday next year um so so there, there are other models let's talk about your music because you've always you've always loved what you've loved you've always um championed your your kind of sound and you've got your own radio show so if you've always been a radio industry man right you've also been a radio passion man you've been running your show with your your DJ and production partner Andy for a long time now, right? How many episodes have you produced? It'll be four hundred and eighty-seven this I week. Mean, that, so t ten years in April next that's year. Ab that's absolutely incredible to to have done that purely through passion. And I guess it's something that's never paid. You you kind of syndicate it. It's on Mixcloud. It was on SoundCloud until they started getting never made a penny out of that radio and not, show. No, um, no, and. You're still doing it, right? So this is something that this is yeah. something that's called the Triple D Show, um, and yeah. just pure passion. Just I've loved this music all my life, and I I need an outlet for it, right? And I, like you said, you know, um, painters will keep on painting, whatever. This is just pure passion yeah. that's driven this, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, as long as someone will play it out, I'll make it. It's that simple because I love doing it, and there's lots of great music around. Um, and you know, it's, I have no idea how many people listen to it. It could be three people in a shed. Um, it could be more than that. I have no idea. You know, it's on quite a few stations around the world. So I imagine there are some people listening to it and I get emails and I get messages on Facebook. So I know people do listen, but it, it's, it's really, um, I just love doing that kind of show. I just love, you know, getting to play dance music for two hours putting it together i have guest djs on so i actually only do an hour it's great to be able to put on djs that i really like um and it, it, it's it's kind of my hobby it's really kind of my hobby so i um i, I justify it to my wife my long-suffering <laughs> wife for instance for the, the time it takes me to make it every week in that i don't go to football i've never been interested in sport i don't have nights out with the lads i don't and don't do any of that stuff so it's my equivalent. It's the time I would. It's less time than I would spend watching football every week to make it. Um, you know, I make it in my house. My I have my podcasting microphone, which I genuinely put in my linen cupboard because the soundproofing is perfect in there, and I record it straight into the Mac. I make, do the mixes on Ableton, and I stitch it all together in the kitchen. And there's a radio show. Predominantly, predominantly vocal. It's I've always loved 
vocal house always since acid house days i love house music with good vocals um you know i don't mind some of the deeper non-vocal stuff as well but i kind of figured i've always kind of loved that that music so it's any kind of sort of house and a lot of disco i got on the kind of disco and edits thing quite a long time ago really because i've always loved disco so there's a lot of that in it and it you know we talk about things changing when the show started 2010 was the edm boom and i'm kind of playing disco and disco house four or five years later all of a sudden disco's big again and it'll go it'll go again away but you know i think i think we're due a trance revival personally uh, that's my that's been my prediction for the last two years phil i think he's got to come back it has to, to. It's, the, it's the only one that hasn't it's yeah. the only one that is terminally on call with late middle-aged men kind of championing the sounds they used to go into in the 90s but it's coming back i know it's coming back just got a feeling um but anyway um, and production you've dabbled in production as well david over the years with um, yeah uh, much serious or just kind of like uh, another rich that needed to be scratched um i did it with so i did i did it with andy daniels who's a, um another uh, manchester dj from the 90s who i first met um doing a night called dna at equinox which was where manumission started off um and we became friends really quickly and then i, I dj'd with him at a night called two kinky which ran in manchester and then cheshire for a long time i remember it very well yeah uh, in fact i dj'd there i did nev yeah. johnson asked me to go and dj yeah. there once very years, messy years, night. years ago very yeah. messy night. Some, um, con- some country house in cheshire somewhere yes in Trodsham. Like, yeah. that's right he yeah moved yeah there out of manchester so we've, we've known each other like forever forever 20 odd years um and he i think he'd come i'd gone to work at head candy and they asked us did we know any good djs from around the country who could play that kind of vocal house sound and i'm like i know exactly the man so uh dan joined us Andy joined us and um then we thought well you know why don't we try and do some remixes in, in that kind of style um and we sort of spoke to the label people and they were like yeah we'll chuck you some money to do some if you want we'll do one see how it turns out that was 2005, I think, 2005. So we started doing remixes under the name of Triple D. Really cheesy because this David Dunn is two Ds and Andy Daniels is one, one D, even though actually there's more Ds, but that's where <laughs> that name came from. Um, and we, 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 we were pretty consistent. I would say it's about 2012. And then um, I changed jobs and da- Andy became a dad for the first time, which was a big shock to him. Um, so we haven't really done anything for quite a while now on the production and we keep sort of saying look you know why don't we do something Um, but it's just finding the time you know because he's got a full time job and DJs and he's a dad Uh, I've got a full time job and DJ and I'm a dad and and it's kind of time but we are talking about getting just sort of roping off some time this year uh, before the end of the year just to knock something out but we only ever did it because we just loved doing it it was fun and mm. we worked with people we liked and you know we had like friends who were keyboard players you know and we had like a, an amazing guy called lee royal who was an old friend of dandy uh, of andy's who had, had worked as a mastering engineer on you know some like really big projects have been taught by some of the best mastering engineers in the world and he did all the engineering for us literally in a loft in a house in worsley in a terraced house that's where we used to make it um and so we did it and we we really loved doing it but it was just it's just time really so you know his daughter's now started school 
so I think we might be able you to squeeze might have a in. window yeah but yeah but we don't you know again you know we, you know the, the first couple of years actually we made we, we made whatever we we made out of it we then spent on usually on people playing instruments because we we used to try and put live bass and live keyboards in wherever we could or percussion or sax or stuff so we never really made any money out of it it all went back into the remixes but we just love doing it it's just anybody who's ever done that if you like doing it you know why 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 it's it's such fun and why it's so absorbing um you do have to have a lot of patience because you're going to hear the same 16 bars again and again and again until until you get it right but um it's just a really absorbing way to sort of like you know spend several hours in a dark room with sweaty men (laughs) yes well yeah uh, there's other other ways and means of getting that, but you know each each definitely to their own. Um, so, um, David, thirty years of DJ club DJ. We haven't even had time to talk about your your work as head of music at NTV, running Ministry of Sound Radio. Loads of other things you've done. Um, to me, you'll always be the guy who gave me a break on the radio and made me think what I was doing was worth something. Um, oh, so I'm you. always going to be thankful Thank to you. that to uh, for you to you for that. Um, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I'm, I love the fact that there's been a twist at this at this stage in your life, and I'm looking forward to grabbing you in a few years' time on on hopefully a hundred and something episode of Tales from the Dance Floor and talking to you about how how the next few years have, have panned out for you. Um, I just know what you've shared is going to be very inspiring to our audience, especially those who straddle full-time work and passion in in music, which you've, with with its ups and downs, seem to have done very, very successfully and without losing any of that passion. So, um, great talking to you as ever, David. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And we'll talk again very soon. See you soon.